Evidence and Answers. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each year, Pat hosts an apologetics conference located in beautiful Hawaii. Today, we will be continuing our broadcast with another fabulous teaching from Greg Kokel entitled Tactics. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's Greg Kokel with part one of his message entitled Tactics. How many were here last year? Just out of curiosity, real high. Let me help me see. Okay. About half of you that I can tell. Last year I gave a talk in which I made a promise, which I kept. And the promise was that I'm going to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know, or how knowledgeable, or aggressive, or even obnoxious the other person happens to be. It's a game plan, I said, that follows a directive in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And there in that passage, what Paul says is this. He says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. In other words, he says to be smart. When you engage people, be smart. Okay? Then he says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt. Okay? Be smart. Be nice. <laughs> what a concept. And then he says, so that you may know how to respond to each person. In other words, Paul says in Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6, essentially, be smart, be nice, but be tactical. That is, approach every circumstance with the individuality of the person in view. You don't have just a, a cookie-cutter approach. I mean, there are some basic things we have to know to communicate, but you want to be mindful of the individual. Well, the game plan that I promised you last year, I gave you, is captured in this book, Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. Last year, I gave you the basic game plan. This time, I want to give you the advanced course, but half of you weren't here for the basic course, and the other half of you forgot it, except for the ones who bought the book. And then you might remember it. So what I thought I'd do is I'd start out quickly with a little review and then move into the third use of Columbo, which I didn't have time to cover. I'll explain the Columbo part in just a moment. Okay? Part of what I've observed is that wonderful conferences like this, and there are many of them all over the country now, and I get to participate in them all the time, have a missing element. They have great guys like Norm Geisler and Gary Habermas and Ron Rhodes and a whole bunch of other people who are really smart. They give you great information, but they're missing a bridge from the content of the conversation, from the scholarship to the relationship. There, that How do you take all of that information and you get it into play? And that's a lot of times when I teach at these conferences, this is what I bring to the table. This is what I bring to the audience. I bring this bridge that is a tactical game plan that gives you a means by which you can engage conversationally effectively, even if you don't know hardly anything. Even if you forget what all the smart guys have taught you, you still can begin maneuvering and be very effective about it. 
Now, when I taught you this plan last time, I laid a foundation, a kind of a predicate that I want to uh, remind you of. And if you weren't here, um, just to put in place. I think that to some degree we've been doing evangelism of late all wrong. We are stuck in a pattern from 50 years ago. 47 years ago, I was on this beach. Actually, I don't even know what direction I'm pointing, but in my mind, I'm pointing to Ala Moana Park, Waikiki, because in 1974 and 1975, both those summers I lived here in Hawaii, and I was part of a summer outreach project where we shared our faith with people on the beach and in the park and whatever. And there you went out with tracks and you gave a simple gospel and you gave that presentation. You asked them to receive Christ. And a lot of people did pray to receive Christ. It was a great thing because the Holy Spirit was doing great things at the time. Plus the gospel made more sense to more people back then than it did now. But times have changed, as you know. And the simple gospel is no longer simple. Okay, and the emphasis back then was kind of go for the gold. You get the simple gospel out, then you try to get them to sign on the dotted line. You get them to pray the prayer, okay? So you're swinging for the fences, and when you come back from these things, a lot of times you could tell the group, hey, I prayed with three people to receive Christ tonight, or something like that. And so it's a big celebration. And some people didn't pray with anybody, but in a couple of days they'd pray with them, because that's the way it was working back then. But times are different. And so what I suggested is a different way of approaching it. The outdated way of sharing the gospel then, in my view, was that then, I mean, it's fine then, it's outdated now, but the thing that's outdated is that we go for the goal line too quickly, okay? And nowadays there's a lot more of pre-evangelism that needs to take place. And so over the years, I, this concept started to settle into my mind, and I want you to write this down because it's really important, but it's very simple and straightforward, and it's not even profound. <laughs> but it's true, and it makes a big difference. Here it is. Write this down. Before there can be a harvest, write it down. Before there can be a harvest, there always has to be a season of gardening first. Before you can have a harvest, there's got to be a season of gardening and nowadays, that season of gardening is a lot longer. Now, I talked to somebody last night, Ron, at dinner, when he became a Christian many, many years ago. I don't know if Ron's here or not tonight. He went from zero to 60, bang, like that. First time he heard the gospel, he became a Christian. But that doesn't happen anymore, hardly ever. People don't hear the gospel out of nowhere and become a Christian right away. Now it takes a long, 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 long time. And if you are in harvest mode, you are going to be deeply disappointed in most of the times you gauge people. And if you think harvest mode is what's necessary, a whole bunch of you are going to sit on the bench. You're not going to be in play is the point. Because the idea of trying to get people to pray to receive Christ, sign on the dotted line, that sounds like conflict. Don't want that, so you sit on the bench, okay? And so what I tried to explain last time around is I tried to encourage you to think differently about the whole process. Do not think, I suggested, about closing the deal. Think about doing some gardening. And I realized when I look at my life for the last next Friday, be 45 years as a Christian, week from tonight. When I look at my life, I realize I am not a harvester. I am a gardener. Now, there are lots and lots of people who I have gardened 
who somebody else harvested. Can you imagine that? Get out of my garden. No, that's not my attitude. My attitude is, like Jesus said in John chapter 4, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. We're all on the same team. And if we need more, if the gardening time is longer than the harvest time, and the harvest is ready, man, it's easy. The fruit just falls into the basket. We need the hard workers in the gardening. And I got a feeling that most of you are gardeners, and you're sitting on the bench because you don't think you're harvesters, which you probably aren't, but you don't realize there's a place for you. Really important, because with, unless you have a season of gardening, you cannot have a harvest. So what I gave you is a new approach. I said last time, don't worry about harvesting, think about gardening. And the way I characterize that is at least the way I do it. And I tell this whenever I speak, I'm 70 university campuses, whenever I speak on these college campuses, secular groups, I always tell them what I'm there to do. After I'm introduced and I kind of say some things, the front end, I tell them I'm not here to convert you tonight. I just want to put a stone in your shoe. I just want to annoy you a little bit. And they all start laughing because they know the Christian's there to annoy him. All right, I'm your man. But you'll thank me when I'm done, is what I say. I want you walking out of here, hobbling along on something that I said that got you thinking because I think Jesus is worth thinking about. So that's my whole approach. My whole approach now, if you want to call it evangelism, I don't call it that anymore. I want to be an ambassador. I want to have it look more like genial diplomacy than D-Day. And so I'm out there just to do a little gardening, trying to say something, make a contribution that will get them thinking. And this is where my game plan comes in. I have a plan on how I do this. Now, last time I had my trench coat and I did my little Columbo routine with my cigar and that was all fine and dandy, but I'm not gonna do it again because I didn't bring my trench coat. And it's not as funny the second time around. But some of you remember Lieutenant Columbo, TV fame, and how he shows up at the crime scene, and he's kind of scratching his head, and he doesn't, it looks like he doesn't know what he's doing, but he uses questions to maneuver and to get the bad guy, or bad girl, as the case may be. And so what I introduced to you was a method of engagement where you connect with people and draw them out by using questions. I said there are three uses of questions, and at least the first two had a model question. So the game plan I gave you last time wasn't the full game plan, it was the first two steps, but that was all that was needed for me to fulfill my promise, which is to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, etc. if you had those first two steps. And I mentioned that the reason that questions are so valuable is because questions are polite. You ask other people about themselves and their views. That draws them out. It shows good manners. It's relaxing. They're doing most of the talking, which is good because it lets you do more. Of the th well, it's not good if you're me because I like to do the most talking. But it's good for the circumstance when we let them talk more and it takes the pressure off of us, plus we're getting valuable information in the process that informs us where to go 
next, that is, which questions I will use next, or whether or not to go next. Because sometimes you're drawing a person out, you realize this is not a divine appointment. I don't think every engagement connection is a divine appointment. I don't think God is going to do something every time I talk to somebody. John chapter 10 says, my sheep hear my voice. And by the way, that's a passage about evangelism. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. In other words, that's talking about the Holy Spirit drawing non-Christians towards Jesus and then believing in him. And as one of my early mentors said, if you're talking to sometimes to somebody, a lot of times you'll just notice they keep eating grass. <laughs> right? The sheep just keep eating grass. Well, don't bother them. Leave them alone. Find some other sheep that lifts his head when you start to talk. They show interest, okay? I'm looking for the person that's looking for me. But how am I doing that now? I, have, I understand that I'm not going to go for the gold. That's not my goal anymore. That's old-style stuff. The world has changed, okay? I'm lowering my expectation for the moment. And by lowering the expectation, encouraging a whole lot more people to get into play, doing what? What do we call this? Gardening, right? Gardening, so that somewhere down the line, somebody else might do the harvesting. I mean, we might have an occasion of harvest, but I don't want you to be thinking about that right now. So we're going to do the gardening. We have a modest goal. The goal is to what? Put a stone in somebody's shoe, which is allegorical for getting them thinking, just giving them something to chew on, move them a little bit closer. That's the gardening motif, okay? We're going to use a game plan to accomplish that using questions. And as it turns out, I mentioned there are three uses. Well, the first two uses I mentioned last time, but I'll review them now. When you find yourself in a circumstance where you, where you think you might be able to have a spiritual impact, even if you're a little nervous about it and you don't know where it's going to go or whether you're up to it, that's okay. I've been in so many situations where I just thought, that there's no, nothing going to happen here. I don't even know how to prosecute this conversation. I don't really know how to get going. And they're heathens, man. They're pagans. They don't love Jesus. They don't like me. What a waste of time. That's what I'm thinking. But what do I do? I just start with my game plan. I start to gather information. That's the first step of your game plan. You just start gathering information. That's all you have to worry about. So when I say it's the first step of your game plan, I don't want you to be thinking about anything else. I don't want you to be thinking about sharing Christ. I don't want you to be thinking about praying with them. Don't forget about that. You're not there yet. That's the destination somewhere down the line in their life. Hopefully, by God's grace, it ain't what it's about right now, right there where you're at. You start thinking about that, you're going to sit on the bench again. All you got to do is use questions to gather information. And so the two kinds of information you want to gather from them with your questions is something about who they are, just friendly, and what they believe if you get there. So now you're bordering on spiritual things. And you might be thinking, well, how do I go from who they are to how they believe? I don't know. I mean, I don't have time to get into that right now. But I do know this. Once you start, sometimes God will just make an opening. And when you get in there, you realize, how do we end up talking about this? I didn't think that person even liked me. They're a pagan. They are heathen. They hate Jesus. So I'm not going to talk to them about anything spiritual. And there you are talking about something spiritual. And you don't know how you got there. That's the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying. You get moving forward, God does stuff. Okay? But you're not committing yourself to anything really demanding at this point. You're just moving forward. Now, I, I gave you a model question to gather information with. 
And the model questions, anybody remember what it was? Just out of curiosity. I know it was a year ago, a year and a half ago. Pardon me? Tell me more, kind of like that. I'll give you, that's a variation. Yes, that's good. You remember that. What makes you think that, or why do you think that? That's the second one. What do you mean by that? That's all. Much less complicated. I'll get to you in a second. We're going to get to that one. So I'll pick. What do you mean by that? That's it. I mean, I, I, I got in a conversation with a, a witch in Wisconsin who was wearing a pentagram, and I asked her what she means, what, whether the jewelry had spiritual significance for her. And that started the conversation. It did. And she told me all about it. I was like, what do you mean by that? Okay. It may be just general drawing people out. Sometimes there's a challenge that is made to Christianity. You're into conversation, and they say, well, everything's relative. Okay, that's a way of dismissing the Christian, right? Now, I wrote a book on relativism. It's over there. Over there. So I know what relativism is, but the person who says everything's relative, I don't know that he knows or she knows what relativism is. They say things that they hear other people say to shut Christians up. So I'm not going to give them a lecture on relativism. I'm going to ask them a question. And what question do you think I'm going to ask? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by relative? Let him talk. Okay? And there's a whole bunch of examples I gave last time around that are all in the book. So if you forgot them, get a reminder. Did I mention I wrote a book about this? <laughs> so you're gathering information. The goal is to know what the person thinks. The next step in the game plan is you want to learn why they think what they think or believe what they believe. This is especially true if they've gotten into something spiritual. All right? Well, the Bible's been changed over all these years. You can't trust it. Really? What do you mean by that? Let them explain it more. Then you've got another question. It's not your job to disprove them right now. Forget about that. We're not even going there. You don't have to do that. You've got another question. The purpose of the question is to reverse the burden of proof. In other words, they make a claim, the Bible's been changed, it is their job to give you reasons why they think it's changed, it is not your job to prove that it hasn't changed. If they make the claim, they bear the burden, okay? So if the DA comes and knocks on your door and says, you robbed the bank, you get to say to the DA what? What? Prove it. Now, I asked that question to a church. There's a thousand people in that audience. There's Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. When I say you get, the DAA says, you robbed the bank, and you get to say, and somebody yelled from the back, what bank? <laughs> I actually have. No, I didn't rob that one. I robbed another one. No, the burden of proof is on the person who makes the claim. And if the claim is controversial, like you did the crime, then you can tell the other person prove it. That's the idea behind the second use of Columbo. So we're gathering information first by asking, what do you mean by that? And now we're reversing the burden of proof. We're not going to give them a free ride. We're gonna, not going to let them say whatever they want to say. And then that, and it's our job to try to disprove them. No, we're going to ask them this question. Why do you believe that? Or how did you come to that conclusion? Or what is the evidence for your view? Something like that. Any variation is fine as long as you're pressing them. Now, I want you to see something about just what I've offered. This is all review so far. You, as the Christian, what pressure is on you? None. What's hard about this? Nothing. 
You're just drawing them out. You are not committed to go anywhere beyond this, but just to discover what they believe and why they believe it. That's it. And if there's no opening after that, or you don't know how to go, then forget about it. It's all right. But I'm going to tell you a secret. I've seen it time and time and time again. People come into a conversation with their sails filled with themselves and their own ideas contrary to Christianity. Okay. Maybe at the university or workplace or something like that. And when the Christian, when I start to ask a couple of questions, it's amazing how the wind just goes out of the sails. Right? Because I get what I called last time the Simon and Garfunkel response, which is the sounds of silence. You ask him what you believe, or why do you believe it, and it's like, dead air. Okay? What have you done? You just asked a question. Now it's their time to put up or shut up, so to speak, and they got lots of times, not always, but lots of times, they got nothing to say. And so you, this is why you can make progress without knowing anything. Just asking the right question. I want to tell you something. There's a guy at Portland State University, Portland State University, P Peter Bogosian, an atheist. He's got a, a, a publication that's called Street Epistemology, and he trains atheists to do this to Christians, just what I'm telling you. He must have read my book. But he did not footnote me. In other words, he's, tra he's training atheists to ask Christians questions about their own convictions, and Christians are left flat-footed. And the tragic thing is, I watched a video, you know, the GoPro deal, on the shoulder of the atheist talking to two Christians, and those Christians are shuffling back and forth and back and forth, and they can't answer the simplest question. And all they can say is, well, I just believe it, I just believe it, I just believe it. That's the first video posted on Bogosian's site. The second companion video to it is a video made by one of those Christians who is now an atheist thanking the Bogosian disciple for asking him questions so he'd realize that Christianity is a bunch of hooey. That's what's happened to our young people who don't know how to defend their faith. This is precisely like what Pat is doing here on this island is so important. And why it's important that you're here. And you begin to pass these things on to your own kids as you're able. But what I want you to see is the capability that these atheists without the truth had to turn, totally turn a Christian upside down without giving a single argument, only asking questions the Christians couldn't answer. Because that caused a seed of doubt to grow, and it ended up flourishing. And that one Christian man walked away from his faith and was profusely thanking the atheists for helping him out doing this. Okay. Now, those are the first two uses of Columbo. You ask, what do you mean by that, and how did you come to that conclusion? Okay. If you go no further, you've done a lot. You've engaged. You've made a friend. You've learned something about how the other side thinks. You might have even put a stone in their shoe just by asking the questions. Okay. That's a great way to go. But there's a third use of Columbo, and that's what I want to do now. Okay. The third use of Columbo is to make a point with questions. You make a point with questions. Now, there are two kinds of points that you might want to make. Let me finish this part, and then I might backtrack and give you a little bit, a tidbit that I uh, left out about the second use of Columbo. You're going to use your questions to make a point. 
Now, the difference between the third use of Colombo and the first and second use of Colombo is with the first and second use of Colombo, you don't need to know nothing except for the question. You could be an absolutely brand new Christian. You are playing the student. You are drawing people out with your questions. You are getting an education and trusting, and I'm kind of promising you that just the asking of questions is going to make a difference. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps at a conference, please give him a call. Local number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Evidence and Answers.